Ian, in the interest of transparency, will you be publishing no. your... Right. Page 94, the Private Eye podcast. Hello and welcome back to Page 94. My name is Andrew Hunter-Murray and this week we give you everything you need to know about offshore tax havens as well as Nick Newman discussing drawing Dave Snooty and his new pals. There is also this noise and this one. So listen out for those. But before that, offshore tax havens. The story of the Panama Papers has swept the world over the last couple of weeks. You may have seen one of today's podcast guests on Panorama, or as literally nobody called it at the time, Panamanorama. Here is former tax inspector turned private eye reporter Richard Brooks. If you go back to the 20s and 30s, really, you you could find a lot of wealthy Americans, crooks, mafiosi, going to places like the Bahamas with their money. And those places started to look for a role, and especially after the Second World War, particularly when a lot of the British colonies became independent or semi-independent and they became overseas territories, they had to find a way of sustaining themselves. And with the encouragement of our government, our foreign office, they went into financial services, uh, which has always just been, in their case, a euphemism for tax avoidance, tax evasion, money laundering, secrecy, all those things we see now. Because, of course, there's no reason to go to these places other than for those things. So you've actually seen these papers? Yeah, I had a look at the uh, papers with the people from Panorama. And there's a lot of it. I mean, there's 11 million documents, most of which are sort of send you to sleep type material. (laughs) We've reported it huge amount of evidence on particular stories involving offshore companies in the last few years. Uh, Big bribery scandals where kickbacks were paid through British Virgin Islands companies and Cayman Island companies and tax evasion through HSBC setting up British Virgin Islands sham companies for their customers. And all these things kind of just pass without too much notice really that certainly the government doesn't do anything about it even other papers didn't really pick it up but then when you get leaks on this scale suddenly they have to take notice it shows up actually the inadequacy the paucity of some of the response to this kind of information before you know a few years ago we reported a story about hsbc uh setting up sham companies for american clients to evade tax doing it in london nobody took the blind bit of notice now, if that had been in one of these leaks, it would have been on the front page. But, you know, that came out through another source, through a court case in America. It was an individual story. So it could be ignored. So, for example, the thing about David Cameron's uh, father yeah. having set up, was it a trust? It's an, an investment company. Okay. Panama company, registered in Panama, uh, managed in Bahamas and Switzerland. Wasn't this in the public eye already? I mean, I I seem to remember that the story had been published a few years ago about Cameron's father and his tax affairs. Yes, it was. We've known for a long time this was a Panama company. But what you got with this leak was board minutes of the company. These showed the kinds of things it was up to, just how convoluted the structure was. Or at least it it actually laid out how convoluted it was. We, we knew it must have been. But it showed that every six months they were flying either to Bahamas or Switzerland to have board meetings while, you know, really carrying on the business back in London day to day. And that's just so that you can jump through the hoops you have to to be non-resident. So it's all a bit of a charade. And 
like any charade, it's only only any fun if you can actually see it acted out, and that that's what this leak did. A lot of the stories, when the um, news of the Panama Papers last week came out, said that there's no suggestion of criminality here. Yeah. And that seems to be at odds with the reason that we're seeing these stories in the first place. What accounts yeah, for that difference? Yeah. Uh, newspapers being scared, really, is one of, one of the things. But, of course, criminality does account for a hell of a lot of it. Not necessarily criminality on the part of the lawyers and accountants and bankers all the time, although sometimes it will. But they are exploiting laws that have been put in place by these territories to enable people to hide their money. When people do use these, for example, a BVI company for which you don't have to disclose your ownership, when people use that, the the people who set them up might not be breaking any law. They're complying with BVI law, but the people behind them are breaking the law. They're failing to declare assets or they're hiding income or they're hiding stolen money from law enforcers. So they're breaking the law and the tax havens are letting them do it. They're turning a blind eye. That What they offer is a blind eye. That's their service. So just to be clear, you, can you think of a good reason why you would use one of these British Virgin Islands companies, for example, that isn't to do with concealing assets or income? No, I can't. I mean, there are people who say, well, sometimes it's legitimate to conceal because uh, you come from very volatile dangerous parts of the world and people with that if they know you've got money they'll kidnap your children and so on you you never find real examples of that whenever you do see people who are hiding money the money looks illicit private eye has been banging on about tax havens for quite a few years so in honor of one of our favorite occasional sections of the paper this is the point where we say i told you so a pun which i've realized now only really works when it's written down Solomon Hughes also writes at the Eye. I was looking back and in 2014 one of our critics was saying that uh, at the moment Private Eye reads like the in-house magazine of a firm of a particularly dull provincial accountants. So in 2014 we were told off uh, for writing lots of stories about tax, which is completely, obviously, rubbish. I did one story which we'd done over a few years about a major conservative donor called uh, Leica Mobile, which sells cheap mobile phone calls, uh, sending all their income to, uh, we finally figured out they weren't paying tax because they were managing to send their income to Madeira in Portugal, which as well as being a um, famous cake-making destination, is uh, also a tax haven. It's not as opaque as the British Virgin Islands or Panama, but it is a tax haven. And so we found out they're sending actually hundreds of millions of pounds there and there by avoiding tax. We kept writing about this. We worked out this structure. And then recently, just at the end of last year, in their accounts, they revealed that they put aside £9.5 million to cover possible penalties uh, for uh, unpaid taxes. So I like to think that somebody at the Revenue read Private Eye and thought, aha, that's how they're doing it. So, you know, that's £9.5 million down to us. Richard Brooks. If you look at all the different strands of this, there's tax evasion. We've written a lot about that in so much as it uh, involves the British banks, notably HSBC. We've reported a lot on the use of tax havens for uh, avoidance, particularly by multinational companies, which doesn't come into this Panama leak quite so much. Okay. And the other big area is money laundering, the use of tax havens by crooks to steal a lot of money. 
that does involve a lot of British overseas territories, and it also involves London, huge amount of money coming through London. So, uh, for example, um, if you've got a crook overseas with a, a large amount of cash, yeah. they'll set up a company, or they'll be yeah. behind a company that's operating from the British Virgin Islands, which then buys property in London, for yeah. example. Yeah. Extremely expensive property. Yeah. That money is then laundered, it's clean, it can be sold, yeah. and you've, yeah. you've created clean money for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the big piece of work we've done on this recently is to map all the property in the England and Wales that's owned by offshore companies. Over 100,000 properties worth a couple of hundred billion pounds. Panama Papers show you actually who's behind a few of these deals, uh, which is quite interesting. It adds to the picture, but it's not hugely surprising. Do you think action hasn't been taken because the government broadly feels that Britain benefits from this more than it loses? No, I think it hasn't been taken because very, very influential people have interests in these places. You look at the number of you know donors to the Tory party, for example, who have a lot of tax haven interests, and to other parties, of course. And then all the banks have massive offshore interests. The City of London is very closely linked to our web of tax havens, the overseas territories. The whole tax haven system has inveigled its way into the economy. It's an intrinsic part of the world economy and of Britain's especially. Also, you can't forget that the government uses tax havens. This is one of the shocking things. Right. This may be, you know, this is something we've been writing about now for 20 years. We've sold a lot of public assets to tax havens. The like country, well, the, famously, the country's tax offices are owned by a Bermudan company. So many PFI deals ultimately owned by offshore companies, particularly in the Channel Islands. We play a big part. We, we go along with this idea that somehow siphoning off money to tax havens is an acceptable part of business. Solomon Hughes. Well, it's a variety of things, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, the the political party, which is the party of government, takes money from people who have interests in offshore. And that's a, a powerful message. They won the last election by taking money from people who have a make money offshore. So that might make them reluctant to really reform it. The the people who run offshore, can who have offshore interests, can then give jobs to the people when they leave government, which is a powerful incentive. I mean, now this is something extraordinary that happened with Tony Blair, is he borrowed a lot of money to buy a house, and it looked like more money than he could afford as Prime Minister. So it was like he was borrowing against future income, and it turned out the future income was, of course, included things like J.P. Morgan. Now, Blair really, really blazed a trail that, and in the sense that all politicians are now Blairites, they've all got that in their minds. So that's a powerful incentive not to regulate. Then you've got a, th- an, a, a more complicated thing is that before the crash, the government tried to get lots of state construction, state services delivered by the private finance initiative by borrowing from the banks. Now, of course, they lumbered us with all these kind of terrible debts and high levels of interest. But that sort of um, will make everything efficient and market run actually puts you in the hands of big corporations, which then might be prone to tax avoiding offshore. And in a way, you can't crack down on them too much because they're also running your schools. So it's sometimes academics uh, call this financialization, where everything becomes a complex financial transaction. And it, it, it throws you in hock in all kinds of ways. And unpicking that is quite difficult. Once this story has, I don't want to say died down, but once it's mm. not on the front pages every day anymore, what happens mm. next? 
Well, it will soon, even if it comes off the front pages for a couple of weeks, it will be back on them in May when David Cameron hosts an anti-corruption summit. And that's going to be a big test because he has, in the last few years, made lots of tub-thumping, resounding announcements about cracking down on corruption and secrecy and so on. He's promised to smash down the, the walls of corporate secrecy and all this kind of thing. And he's done very little. I think they are floating this idea about um, registers of ownership of offshore jurisdictions pushing for it but at the moment what they're saying is they're saying registers of ownership which are available to be looked at by law enforcement authorities not the public now of course the whole point is particularly in britain is that our regulators for whatever reason haven't been very good at uh, following up uh, economic crime and so if they can look at it well they might not get around to it whereas if it's public you get it you can create a stink in the press or through campaigners or through uh, business rivals even something that brings real focus on that but i just really here what we haven't seen i mean this is a real problem uh slicker in the very back of the eye is very good on this is the serious fraud office just has a not a good record of success and it really needs to get some successes in that's a question of absolute political will of drive and not just of um, what's the necessary expected reform which i think is more likely what you'd get out of a summit you know what you need is to end tax havens can that be done if all countries sign up to end tax havens for example if Mm. let's say britain shuts down all of its overseas tax havens yeah if if one other country is still operating them surely all the trade will go to them is yeah is there there a way of doing it apart from completely unilaterally across the globe, which often is going to be incredibly difficult. It is, but it's, it's not completely impossible. Okay. I think if you, if you shut down the big ones, there would then be, of course, money would go to smaller places, but you know, their, their capacity would be strained. And, and you have to, and, and at that point, you can say, right, we don't recognise, you can, you can shun those places, you can, you can economically send them to Coventry. You can say, okay, if you're a company, if let's say, I don't know, Newey or some tax havens held out and was the one, you could say, uh, right, we just won't recognise those companies. You can't have bank accounts, you can't have, you can't sue in our courts, you can't do all those kinds of things. I would set out an objective to end Britain's tax havens. And you would need some kind of commission to look at all the rules because it's like you've got, to, you've got to untangle a web it is like a sort of slinky that's gone wrong you know it's turned in on <laughs> itself because of tax havens and you've got to get it back to being a proper slinky <laughs> and that's not easy um as, so as, as, some, as any 10 year old will tell you that's it's right. very hard. yeah 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 no i would i would say you have a a big inquiry into how to move from where we are now to a world in which you don't have tax havens there'll be the question of how you make sure that the territories and the people who live in them hundreds of thousands of people what sort of viable future they have take one example british virgin islands if you said right you shut down your corporate services industry you can't have international business companies in the british virgin islands and we'll compensate you for how much that earns your economy that would be a a major step straight away in 10 words how would you solve the problem of offshore finance and its murkinesses i'd say prosecutions i'd say ownership registers 
I'd say country by country reporting. You've got three left. People in jail. I didn't think you were going to do it. Yeah. I didn't think you were going to make keep it to ten. I didn't think I was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> if all of these businesses, banks, financial institutions and political leaders are trying to keep their money offshore, that must mean that our taxes are too high compared with other countries. Right? There's no real evidence that tax rates do move people around the world that much. Or that, you know, if you drop a tax rate, there's a lot of myths surrounding, you know, a higher tax rate means people uh, start avoiding more. Well, of course they avoid a bit more, but they but they do work. I mean, you look at periods of higher taxation up to, you know, the 70s, for example. We had higher economic growth than we've had since. So they're not uh, a barrier to the economy. So, really. cor- so corporation tax or things like that, which the Chancellor has often said, you know, we need to keep the corporation tax as low yeah. as possible to attract business to Britain. You're saying oh, that's basically not really that's, true. That's, yeah, that is just nonsense. We're turning ourselves into a tax corporate tax haven. So you you don't attract business. You attract brass plates. You attract foreign companies to say we'll put our HQ here. Using that plus some offshore arrangements, we'll get an overall much lower corporate tax rate. But you don't actually get anything meaningful in the UK. So people talk about uh, the big tech companies, your Facebooks and your Googles, going to Ireland or routing money through Ireland because their money is a lot lower. But you're saying that Ireland won't really see an enormous benefit there and that if we did it, we wouldn't either. The tax haven sees a bit of benefit, but it's nothing like the loss that everyone else faces. That's that's the way tax havens work. I mean, it's the same with individuals. You know, the BVI gets money out of someone setting up a shell company. It gets a thousand pounds, right? Which, when you've got four hundred thousand people doing that in the BVI, that's that's a lot of money for a small economy. That's how it keeps itself going. But of course, the loss to the rest of the world is much greater than the thousand pounds. I mean, that's why the person set it up in the first place. So it's it's parasitic. And you're saying that Britain's behaviour has been, to a certain extent, turning our own country into a corporate tax haven. Yeah, yeah, especially for the biggest multinationals. We have a corporate tax rate going down to 18%, I think, now, uh, which is way below any competitors. Even if this were a competition, right? Right. We would be kind of giving, you know, we're selling ourselves far too cheaply. We're, We're sort of 10 points below the average. There's no need for that. Even if you wanted to just be a shrewd competitor, you might go one or two, you know. You know, we're just giving money away. And that allows some big multinationals to say, "Okay, we'll base ourselves here. We then have very relaxed rules on what they can shift into tax haven subsidiary companies in places, usually in places like Luxembourg. And the overall result is that we're a good place to have a brass plate head office. The Chancellor would say we're a good place to do business. Right. But we're not. Thanks to Richard Brooks and Solomon Hughes. And we should point out that the Solomon Hughes interviewed here is not the Solomon Hughes named in the Panama Papers who happens to be a lay bishop. Or at least, that's what he tells me. You can, of course, find out what we've made of the Panama Papers in this week's edition of the MAG 1416, which is on newsstands right now. Do go and buy it. Okay, have you done it? Okay, good. Right, next, you may have noticed that a certain David Cameron has not been mentioned thus far in this episode. We are going to right that wrong now by talking to writer and cartoonist Nick Newman. Among many other things, Nick draws the eye strip Dave Snooty and his new pals, which tackles some of the japes and tomfoolery that Dave and his friends get up to in government. 
We started off by talking about the long history of British Prime Ministers in cartoon form. Every time the, the government changes, you do start to think, how are we going to tackle this lot? And in the past, we've done it through our love affair with, with comics, really. Um, and so we've parodied Dan Dare and we did Kinnock as this sort of space hero. Um, and that was sort of a world which sort of all um, seemed to work. And um, I can remember Douglas Hurd remember him mm. he was a lardy dalek <laughs> because he was very posh and tebbit was a sort of skeletal figure and there was dr Huin, who was the waste of time lord <laughs> and the, and and actually um you know years after peter brooks started doing exactly the same thing in the times he did haig as the mekon well we did maggie as the magon um so uh, you know the, the, there's a great sort of tradition in the eye of doing political um, cartoon strips but about 11 years ago when Cameron became in charge of the Tory party it did strike us that um, this was the ultimate uh, reducing politics to um, schoolboy comic level and it just sort of fitted with um, his snooty persona it was jolly handy that I could also draw him which is <laughs> which is which is not always the case <laughs> I think when Nick started drawing it we we thought well that's extraordinary you know the the cabinet is now full of old Etonians. We didn't realise that after 10 years, all jobs are done by old Etonians. The Archbishop of Canterbury, um, all major acting roles, uh, the Mayor of London, the new Mayor of London, the next Mayor of London. It's, they're all OEs. There is something about it which is very reductive, as in it's reduce it. It's the most primal instincts of you're my friend, you're not, you're causing trouble because you want this thing which I've gotten, you have not got. Yes, yes. Well, that is the the, the essence of all politics, isn't it? <laughs> um, it's um, who's in and who's out. There's a sort of class element as well, which um, you may have detected in the strip, pretty much divided up into um, oiks and toffs. It hasn't really gone away. There's still a sort of simmering thing where uh, we called Michael Gove right from the start, Oiky Gove, because he didn't go to Eton. And it's still there. You know, there's, it comes out in the, um, in the battle over Europe. You know, there's, there's that sort of feeling that he's been um, looked down upon by the toffs. It generally involves uh, somebody being booted out at the end. Um, there's a lot of... Um, uh, very silly cartoon violence in the strip. Roasting people over fires. <laughs> it all comes from one place, <laughs> uh, which is sort of be no world. Yeah, we're in in incredibly indebted to Leo Baxendale and, and uh, who created the Bash Street Kids, and um, we're channeling that. What I like is there was a period where people were saying, oh, this sort of Bullingdon, Eton-y, Lord Snooty stuff, I mean, it's it's all over. It's not important. It's We're all in it together. And we're sort of not all in Panama together, though, are we? Uh, there's a slight difference. And suddenly you're back in the world where, hey, Peter's trust fund. Um, and we know where we are. Yeah. In the latest issue, we've tackled the Panama um, issue in the strip because it's all about Peter and its inheritance and all of that sort of thing, which is, um, again, sort of where Lord Snooty comes from. And in his world, don't all chums. Yeah, have a fund that <laughs> supplies you a couple of hundred grand for the school fees. Yeah, and keeps you in spats for the rest of your life. <laughs> Is Dave Snooty a good way of saying things that you don't say in the Cameron Free School or making different points about the government? Because it's, it's a bit curious having two different parodies that are very close to each other in the magazine of the same kind of thing. 
I think the the snooty strip is really more about the relationships between the gang, you know, the the um, and it's the class and the the rivalries. Whereas I think the Cameron Free School is is more about the actual running of the country and the the the, the bigger picture. There are increasingly few places which do strips now. So you've got Viz, you've got a few of the tabloid newspapers, and, I mean, the Dandy has gone online, and, you know, the Beano is uh, sadly diminished. You, uh, do you guys think that this is a thing which can continue? Will we keep seeing these things in 10, 20 years? Or? Gosh, um, I hope so. I mean, the the thing about strips is they're incredibly difficult to do, and, and you know, you're, as cartoonists are often contacted and said, can you do us a strip a bit like Bristow? And you think, well, if I could do a strip a bit like Bristow, I would do it. And I would be um, a household name um, or Andy Cap or whatever. They're very hard to do. But if you get them right, they can really transform the readership of the magazine. And back in the 60s, Barry McKenzie was so popular that it, you know people were just buying the mag just to see what Barry McKenzie was up to. Quite a few of the strips that we've published have had other lives. Barry McKenzie was turned into a film. Uh, Celeb was turned into a TV series. The Cloggies was turned into a radio series. There's a sort of great tradition. You know, you're, you're creating a sort of sitcom world um, on paper, and it transports, when it works well, it transports very well onto um, other media. I think it's likely that our obsession with comics is of a particular generation and uh, there are other comics, there's superhero comics and there are comics people read, but I'm guessing the next generation of cartoonists will be parodying something else. Obviously, I'm looking at manga strips at the moment. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's, it's going to go somewhere else. But, you know, for the time being, the fit for both the generation of politicians and for Nick and, and um, the generation of cartoons this is still still be no world really. And it's interesting that the, you know, the, the new satire shows um, the, like Newsoids which is coming back in the summer which is a very very funny puppet show but basically it inhabits the same sort of world that we do and the way they deal with Cameron and Osborne is pretty much a sort of snooty world. In fact, all the cartoonists do 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 uh, do a sort of version of Snooty, really. Mm. Well, that's probably because it's true. True, exactly. <laughs> that's it for this week. Thanks to Nick, Ian, Richard, and Solomon, and to you all for listening. If you'd like an extended, maybe even a sort of printed version of this podcast, uh, then issue 1416 of Private Eye is on newsstands now, containing stories about John Whittingdale, Zach Goldsmith, and a very amusing cartoon featuring Ian Dury. Until next time, goodbye.